0: Good morning everyone. Good to see a COVID full house again. Someday soon it will be full full house. That will be a good day. Hopefully January. And uh, get rid of these spacing requirements. I feel a little ringy, echoey. Maybe it's the gain. You can probably turn my gain down a bit. I don't know. That's it. (laughs) Um, I'll just talk for a little bit while you... There we go. That's getting better. Maybe you just can't hear me anymore. Need a little bit for the people online, but I can talk loud enough for sure. Maybe I'll just talk a little louder. I'm trying a different mic position, so maybe that's part of the problem. I'll talk a little louder, and then people in here can hear me, and maybe people online can hear me as well. That's sounding pretty good. Um, We're continuing in our series on the imperfect disciple, and um, as you're reading the book, you may think that at times Mr. Wilson is perhaps a bit of a pessimist and a little bit mean and a little bit insulting. He spends a fair amount of his time saying unflattering things, starting with himself but also including the church, and especially this week, the pretend church, the fake church, the polished church, or as he talks about in this chapter, the Instagrammed church, the church that has the filters put on the picture of itself and the churchgoers who filter the view that people have of themselves so that they look good so that they look more righteous than they really are. And in a book titled The Imperfect Disciple, you may have noticed that the author has one clear theme that he is presenting throughout this book. Chapter to chapter, he wants to address the real church. He wants to address real disciples, the real us, not the carefully curated picture that we have of ourselves in our head and that we try to present to others believing that we fool them. And so he's chapter by chapter chipping away at and stripping away the veneer of cool and hip and got-it-all-together Christians to get down to the nerds and the wimps and the wounded of the church that we really are and who can boast in nothing but in Jesus, whose strength is in our weakness. That's where he wants us to get in his book, and that's why he good-naturedly kind of chips away at the veneer. Mr. Wilson believes it's worth the risk of poking fun and needling and as good-naturedly as possible exposing our weakness because if we can both laugh and weep at our frailty as the real church without filters, then he believes we can really finally experience the grace that God intends for us because God's grace is intended for the imperfect church, the imperfect bride. And if we can really finally experience the grace that God has for people who don't have it all together, then we can maybe be a real hope and have a real message for those who find themselves drawn to us. But the church without filters doesn't look great, if we're honest. I mean, it's made up of us, right? And on any given day, the disciples that make up the church can be grumpy, prideful, sarcastic, wounded, angry, spiteful, sensitive, frail, disobedient, headstrong, selfish, or deceived. Just pick a day, and there's dozens of us that are some of those things, usually more than just one or two. But as Christ followers, as disciples, we are not allowed to simply say, nope, to the church as we may be tempted to do from time to time, to just say, that group of hypocrites, that group of insensitive people, that group of headstrong, stubborn people, that rude people, I just want nothing to do with the church. But as disciples, we don't get to say that. We don't get to say nope to the church any more than we get to say nope to Jesus, or nope to the Scriptures, or nope to the Holy Spirit. Disciples are formed by the Word, as we heard about last week, and the forming that comes by the word is in the church. Now, we may at times need to find our new place within the church, or maybe even find some other local church, but there is no place for a true disciple that is apart from God's church. We are called to love it even as we love our own body, because it's Christ's body. We are called to love it as we love Jesus, because it is Jesus' bride imperfect though she may be. And so this morning, in order to understand the importance of the church and how a disciple views the church rightly, we have to see the church as God does. So the first third or so of this message is about how God sees His church and us coming to understand God's view of us. And that means we need to get our brains around and our hearts around a very awkward and embarrassing intimacy that God reserves for the most unlikely unworthy and imperfect bride us and it is an awkward and embarrassing intimacy because when Jesus calls us on this journey to follow him as be his disciple he calls us onto a path towards this intimacy intimacy first with himself and then with others and it's awkward and it's embarrassing we go back to the Old Testament. Probably the best biblical word for intimacy is the word no. It's first used in the context of relationships in Genesis 4.1. Genesis 4.1, I'll remind you, uses the word no this way. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now that's from the King James Version. It's an old school translation. It's used when used to be that when you said that two people knew each other biblically, you understood how they knew each other, right? They knew each other in the biblical sense. And that's important because that's what the word no means in the Bible. But that's a very genteel translation of the word. So if you have one of the sort of more modern NIV translations, your Bible probably says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. So she became pregnant. So we know what this knowing is about, right? But in case there's any question, the new New International Version, released a decade or so le- later, spells it out even more clearly. Genesis 4, 1 reads, And Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. So apparently Christians were not understanding what this word meant. <laughs> so over time, the translators just kept spelling it out more and more Clearly. And if we're still not getting it, the New Living Translation makes it super clear. Genesis 4:1 is now Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant. So I think that's clear enough now. They finally got it through our heads. This is what the word no means. But those are very mechanical and functional descriptions of what is taking place physically. But the, the word really is no, and the Hebrew word for no here is yada. And the definition of yada is to know and to be known completely. And that's why it's used of Adam and Eve. That's why it's used of husband and wife. Yada is used over a thousand times in Scripture, and it encompasses all kinds of knowledge. It means to know observationally by seeing and experientially by doing, to know intellectually by our mind, and to know sensually by our senses. We don't want to just blush and brush past Genesis 4-1, because this is a yada moment between a husband and a wife. It's an intimate connection to know and be known, and it's not here by accident. There's something to be said for the sacredness of sexual intimacy that when we first read about sex, first of all, it's in the first ten pages of the Bible, but it's a description about intimacy, yada knowledge between Adam and Eve. It's about intimate knowledge, not simply function. Now, where am I going with this? Well, that word, that same word, yada, is the word that God uses for how he wants to know us and how we are to know him. It's no accident that the church is considered the bride of Jesus or the bride of Christ. The people of God have always been considered the betrothed of God. Over and over, yada is the word that is used to describe how God knows you and how he wants to be known by you. David uses the word yada about six times to describe how God knows us in Psalm 139. He says, O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts, even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I'm at rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it. You know, you know, you know. David speaks to God in this intimate way. It says, God, you know how I feel. You know how I hurt. You know how I'm thinking. You know my heart. That's how God wants us to know him. But what about God and his people as a whole? What about God and his church or his nation? God and his ecclesia, those who are called out of the world to be his. What does God think about them? When God speaks of his relationship to his people in the Old Testament he says a lot more than simply he wants to know his people. Just like the translators had to spell it out for us in Genesis 4-1, God repeatedly spells it out for his people how he wants to know them. And he says it in embarrassing ways like this. By the prophet Hosea in chapter 2, he says, I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion fairly obvious. He's speaking of Israel. He says, I will take you, Israel, and make you my wife forever. But it gets better. Through the prophet Ezekiel, God describes his desire for Israel this way. He says in chapter 16, verse 8, when I passed by you again, I saw you. And behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you, and I covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you, and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God and you became mine. Well, that's awkward, isn't it? That's embarrassing. This is God talking about his people Israel. He says, I saw you. You were ready to be a bride, and I came, and I put my cover over you, and I covenanted with you, and you became mine. That's how God speaks when he's speaking about his people, and I'm leaving out the saucier parts of Ezekiel 16. You can go and read that and continue on and see how God talks about his bride. His people are his wife, his betrothed. And here's the really embarrassing part of this. This is where it gets really awkward. Every time God starts talking like this to his people, it's when his bride is at her ugliest and least deserving. That's when God brings out this language about how he wants to marry his people and make them his wife and put his garment over them and covenant with them. It's when his people are at their ugliest and least deserving, when his people are at their most imperfect. In order to make his point through the prophet Hosea that we read to set up that incredible promise of verse 19, God had his prophet Hosea marry a certain woman who practiced a very old profession, the oldest profession, some would say. I'll read it in the NIV version. It's a little more subtle. Hosea 1 says, When the Lord began speaking through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go and marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So God literally, to make his point, had his prophet marry that woman because she was a good representative of his people Israel and how unfaithful they were and how imperfect they were. And it is that people best represented by that woman that God says he will take as his wife, not a pure people, not a perfect people, not a faithful people, just the opposite. God's choice is to covenant with that kind of people. The same thing in Ezekiel. The first seven verses of chapter 16 describe Jerusalem, the people of God, as practicing abomination, people of illegitimate parentage, abandoned at birth, not even pitied, cast out and abhorred on the day they were born. They are not pretty. They are not beautiful. They are not perfect. But it is to that people that God says, I covered your nakedness. I covenanted with you. I made you mine. And the rest of Ezekiel 16 plays out like it did in Hosea. Israel is unfaithful to God. They run to pagan nations. They worship idols. And yet God does not forget He has chosen this wife. He covers that bride with His garment and takes her to His bed. It's embarrassing, and it's awkward, and it's intimate in ways that we can barely comprehend that the God of the universe who is holy and pure, covenants with such an imperfect bride. Especially since we, the church, are that imperfect bride that God loves through Jesus. This is how God sees us. He knows that we are fallen and faithless. He knows way worse things about the church than you think you know about the church. And yet God, who has every reason to reject us, loves us. And when we come in forward into the New Testament, we discover God's feelings are exactly the same still. The Apostle Paul uncovers the corner of this mystery just a little bit for us in Ephesians chapter 5. While Paul is in the process of instructing Christian husbands and Christian wives of how to behave with one another, he very naturally, for his object lesson, leans into and points towards this reality of God's marriage to his church through Jesus. Ephesians 5, 25 to 30, I'm sure is very familiar to all of you, but I'll just read it for you and and listen to the emphasis that Paul puts on the relationship between Jesus, or God, and his church. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her You see, Paul's trying to make a point about husbands and wives, but meanwhile, he's telling us a lot about Christ and the church. That embarrassing, awkward intimacy that the Father had for Israel, Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit now have for true Israel by faith, the church this deeply intimate bride and groom kind of love of God, expressing it now towards the church through Jesus. And furthermore, we see that this love of God is not just sentimental. The love of God which He takes the initiative to express to His imperfect bride is a love of action. I don't know about you, but it seems like our culture has lost what the meaning of love actually is anymore. There are poets who write about love. There are songwriters who sing about love. But then you look at the life of those poets and the life of those songwriters, and you wonder if they know anything about what love actually is. Because there's very little action of love in their life, even though they sing and write about it so beautiful. It's just a sentimental kind of love. But God's love towards us is not just sentimental words. It's not just a feeling somehow in the heart of God. It is that, but it is far more. It is love in action. The love of God is not merely feeling, but doing. God's doing something for His disciples through the church. That is why the church as the bride is not optional, because God's love is expressed to you through the church. And in fact, in this passage, we can see God's love through Jesus in three distinct ways. We see what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do for his church. So the first sort of third, the first half of this message was just to get our minds around the love that God has for his people, the love of a bride and groom, the deeply awkward, embarrassing, intimate love of God for an imperfect and impure bride. But now we see the love of God expressed in what Jesus has done now, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do for his disciples, for his bride, through the church. What Jesus has done. So Paul says first off in this text in Ephesians that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Past tense. This is what has been done. Without Jesus going to the cross, there would be no church. There would be no church in Ephesus, There would be no church in Corinth, no church in Rome, in Spain, in Britain, or in Canada, no church in Halliburton, except that God, out of love, sent his Son, and Jesus, in love, went to the cross. This is what Jesus has done for the church, is he's gone to the cross and given himself up to even make the church possible. It was while we were aliens and enemies to God that he did this. While we were imperfect, while we were flirting with other gods, while we were running around in the world, while we we were even rebellious and had animosity towards God, he died to create his church out of love. Jesus gave himself for an imperfect bride. He ransomed his church out of captivity. And this is true of the church, and it is true of each of us individually who make up the church. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says of himself personally, and what all disciples of Jesus can say, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So we can talk in both senses, that that Jesus gave himself up to bring the church into being as a conglomeration of all disciples, and we can also speak as Paul does here in Galatians and say, he died for me, me as a disciple. From before the foundation of the world, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit looked forward and saw me. He saw you. And you have been in the heart of God since before creation. You've been in the mind of God since before creation. He died for you personally and for the whole church to bring it into being, to incorporate you into his bride, to make you a part of his bride, the church. That's what Jesus has done. Secondly, what is Jesus doing in this text? The Apostle Paul then goes on to say, after having given himself to form the church, Jesus did it that he may sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. And that is what Jesus is doing. He gave himself on the cross for our justification, or what we might call our salvation, and now after our justification in the church, he is sanctifying us. The church is for our sanctification. It is for cleansing us, for washing us with the Word of God. It's important as disciples that we understand this point justification which makes us right with God, what we think of as our salvation, is not an end unto itself. And we are often tempted to think that way. Jesus died to forgive me and save me from my sins. Full stop. I'm done with the gospel. Well, God isn't done. Jesus isn't done. There's nothing in the Bible that says that we can pick and choose from the will of God like it's a buffet, Like, I'll have the forgiveness and the justification, but I won't have the sanctification because, you know, sanctification goes straight to my hips. No, it's Jesus who justifies and it's Jesus who will sanctify. If you've been justified, you will be sanctified. Right? Jesus says he has done it that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Justification must lead to sanctification. Sanctification is not an exhortation in the Scriptures. Jesus does not implore us by his word, please take my sanctification just as you took my justification. It's not an option. If you've been saved, if you've been forgiven, if you've been justified, you will be sanctified. It is he who wills and works within us. Writing his letter to Titus in chapter 2, Paul says, writes that the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation and training us to live self-controlled and upright lives as we await Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. That's the justification part. We got that. So Jesus gave himself for us, sounds familiar to Ephesians, to redeem us from all wickedness, and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Don't miss that. Jesus died to save us, to redeem us, to justify us, and to purify for himself a people. You don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to say, I'll take your forgiveness, but I'll live my impure life. Jesus will not, allow that to happen. You see, Jesus died for our justification, not as a finished work in itself, but to commence sanctification in order to purify this people who are eager to do good. It's in the church, if we go back to Ephesians, in the church, by the washing of the word that Jesus is sanctifying his disciples— He does it. God does it. We may resist it at times. We may run at times. And we may stumble at times in our sanctification. We may walk slowly in our sanctification. But the attitude and direction of a justified disciple who is forgiven, the attitude and direction of our heart remains aimed at the cross, aimed at Christ, aimed at our Savior. He is our treasure, and He is sanctifying us. That is the natural and inevitable result of justification. Philippians 1.6 says, "...being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus." So God's love for his bride, his church, is in what Jesus has done. He's given himself for our justification. It is what Jesus is doing. He is sanctifying us by the washing of his word in the church. But thirdly, it's what Jesus will do. Then Paul goes on and he says, Jesus is going to present this washing of his gathered disciples, the church, so that in the future, he says, he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Paul says there's a future promise here in what Jesus is doing and has done. There's a future time when we will be presented all together as the bride of Christ before Jesus, and when that day comes, it will be because Jesus has washed us clean so that we are presented before him as holy, and we should not find it so amazing that as this picture is revealed to us in Revelation of John, this future picture of the bride being presented, we're not surprised that our presentation is at a marriage feast. Revelation nineteen six to eight says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride is. Has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So there we are in the end. The bride of Christ, finally at the marriage feast with the groom. The marriage of the Lamb consummated. And all three of the same acts of God's love are represented again in this text in Revelation. If you you slow down, you'll notice. First of all, the writer shows us that Jesus is the Lamb, and in seeing Jesus as the Lamb, we acknowledge His death on the cross as the sacrifice that is worthy for the forgiveness of our sins. And then, by showing the bride as made ready, in other words, the bride having been washed by the Word, We see that it was granted that she wear white linen, which represents the righteous deeds of the saints' sanctification. And so we have both justification in the Lamb and sanctification in the bride that is ready at the marriage feast of the Lamb in the end. Jesus gave Himself to create His church. He's washing and sanctifying His church. And we will be consummated in eternal relationship with Jesus in the end as his church together. There is no place in a disciple's life apart from the church. You can't simply nope your way out of this. God loves his church, and he's doing these things. He's expressing his love by the church, and it's with his church that he'll be united. You've noticed that Paul emphasizes, and I've emphasized the church, Because it is the church in which God expresses His love in this way. It's the church that's the bride of Christ. Imperfect though she still be right now. God's people never ever got it all together in the Old Testament. Israel stumbled to the very end. God's church right now in this world is made up of imperfect disciples and will be an imperfect bride. We will not be presented as perfect until the end, either as individuals or as a collective. But disciples of Jesus don't have the option of rejecting his bride. You can't love Jesus and hate his fiance. The Christian rapper Lecrae has a great song. It's called The Church. Look it up, even if you're over 30. That captures this in a really contemporary form, and in part it goes this way, and I will not attempt to rap it. Oh, I'm going to disappoint you, sorry. <laughs> yeah, she may look gritty. When her man comes back, she's going to look so pretty. She's the church. You might see her acting crazy. Be patient with her, though, because she's still God's baby. <laughs> she's the church. Before you diss her, get to know her. Jesus got a thing for her and died just to show her. She's the church. Still, the present reality is she was born a casualty. Though she's made alive, she's affected by depravity. Once lived in sin and enslaved by her lustin', folks catch her slippin' and they turn away disgusted. She's a work in progress. Christ is ahead of her. He washed her clean with the words he done said to her. She's already pretty, but she's not really dressed. Sometimes she may look silly, but she's far from a mess. Look at Ephesians 4, where Paul gets practical, 1 Timothy and Titus, if you think I'm irrational. That's Lecrae expressing what God has said, what Jesus has said, what Paul has said, what John has said. We're the bride of Christ. We're not pretty, but we're not done. If you think Mr. Wilson Or perhaps Lecrae is hard on the church at times. They have nothing on St. Augustine, who summed up over 1,600 years ago most of the Old Testament and the New Testament this way. The church is a whore, but she's still my mother. That's the reality of who we are. We are the bride of Christ. It's that church that we are. It's that church that we must abide in. So how do we react to this imperfect bride then? If the church is far from perfect yet, she still has her good days and her bad days, but God's love is with his church, and we need to know how to react to her. And I've lost, there it is, my last page. As you study the New Testament, sorry, let me back up. I just want to make one more note from Revelation. God loves his church, and he has this intimacy with this church that's breathtaking for us to consider. And he's proven his love by his actions, and he sent his son to die, to wash and cleanse his people, to bring them to glory as holy. And notice in Revelation it says, and grant, granted to us that we might wear white linens. See, the Bible is not unaware of the fact that we don't get to deserve white linens but it's granted to us that we get to wear white linens in the end. It's a gift that we're given as the imperfect bride to be dressed finely for the wedding feast. And as you study the New Testament, you'll find it is from letter to letter and chapter to chapter a lesson in how as disciples we're meant to react to this imperfect church that doesn't deserve to wear white linen. The Apostle Paul and all the disciples are endlessly living in themselves and dealing with themselves an imperfect church. Whether it's Corinth or Ephesus or Galatia or Philippi, they are all wrinkled and spotted brides. But you'll notice as you read that Paul's approach to the imperfect church is to resentlessly focus on Christ. And so as we as disciples, as we consider the imperfect church, we can follow in the footsteps of Paul. And not focus on the people and not focus on the blemishes, and not focus on the wrinkles, but focus on Christ. Paul says over and over again in a hundred different ways, we are not a great people, but Jesus is a great Savior. We are weak and considered of no account, but Jesus is strong and Lord of all creation. We are enemies and rebels, but Jesus has made us heirs of salvations. Our minds are made foolish by this world, but Jesus is transforming our minds. Paul continuously points people away from themselves and towards Christ, and that's how you respond to an imperfect bride. Whenever she stumbles, whenever she messes up, whenever she speaks or acts poorly, and I'm going to do that, to you at times, and others will. As the church did countless times towards Paul himself, instead of focusing on the imperfections of the bride, like Paul, you patiently point her and point yourself back towards Jesus because we are not a great people, but he is a great Savior. Jesus gave himself. He is washing us by his word. He will bring us to glory, and he is doing all of this through his church she ain't pretty but she's not who she will be yet let's pray father god thank you for your word we thank you for your church (laughs) i couldn't imagine living this christian life apart from brothers and sisters i couldn't imagine living this christian life on my own and you saw that and so you know and you had a plan You said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And you may leave father and mother over this faith in me, but I'm going to give you fathers and mothers and sons and daughters a hundred times what you give up. And you do it in your church. We have brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and fathers and mothers of a spiritual nature that replace anything that we leave behind. We give up a house for the faith There's a hundred houses we could sleep in tonight if we needed to. Father, you've not left us alone, but you've given us your body, you've given us your bride. Father, help us to see it the way you see it. Help us to love it the way you love it. Help us to be loved by you through it the way you would have us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.